And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there and welcome to the show. Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. My name's Dan Moylan. Hello to you and from The Athletic, Phil Hay. Hello to you too. And from The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. Right now, we're offering you the chance to subscribe to The Athletic for a quid a month. You can access everything Phil's been writing about recently and all his stuff, including most recently how Ilian Melier has become Bielsa's number one. He's also been writing about the Amazon documentary this week, so check out both of those. This offer is a limited time offer, so get yourself to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to sign up. That's theathletic.com forward slash leads pod, and it's just a pound a month. We've got a Phil Hay Q&A coming up and we'll get into Michael Cuisance and the transfer activity shortly. First, let's get your take on Sheffield United. Then, Phil, another victory, another crucial three points in the Premier League bag. Best performance of the season, I felt. Um, not to take away from what went on at Anfield on, on the opening day and, and not to detract from, from that shootout because it was it was very engaging and, and it was really encouraging to see Leeds take Liverpool on in the way that they did. But I think... It was apparent after the, the Fulham game that, that Bielsa had the goals that were being conceded on his mind. I, I don't think he felt that they'd been so poor defensively that they deserved to concede seven times. But you could tell from what he was saying that it was something he, he wanted to deal with and, and something he, he wanted to tighten up. And and I did think Leeds were more structured and, and organised um, at Sheffield United. It wasn't to say that they, they didn't give away chances and there were there were some very good opportunities for, for Sheffield United at 0-0. But... I thought particularly in the second half, it, it felt like going back to the championship and it felt like watching Leeds in the best parts of, of last season where they dominated the area outside Sheffield United's box where they were constantly on the front foot and, and seemed to have a lot more control in their play. And, and I thought a bit more zip and a bit more energy in the legs than Sheffield United. And, you know, I, I, I listened to Chris Wilder afterwards and, and he seemed unconvinced at all that, that Leeds had deserved to win that game. But I felt by the time Bamford scored and, and headed in that late winner that, that Leeds had done enough. Um, I, I thought that, that they were the team who came on strong in the second half. And, and I've got to say, it's a big result that. It's, it's, not, it's not a gimme, Bramall Lane, at all. And, and I know Sheffield United aren't in the, the best of form at the minute. I know that they're, they're not in particularly great shape compared to the, the peak last season. But you never count on too much there and, and you never count on an, an easy game. And it did go really in the way that all of the games between Wilder and Bielsa have gone, you know, in the past couple of years, which is that big moments um, in the game, big moments that the game turned on. You can think back to the, the original meeting at Bramall Lane where Henderson made that error late on. Billy Sharp missed a, missed a very, very good chance earlier in the game. You can think back to the game at Ellen Road where Tyler Roberts hit the post and then the, the error from the Leeds defence letting Basham slide in the winner. And it was a little bit the same on, on Sunday. You know, the save from Mesley in the first half, the, the first of the two from Lundstrom was was fantastic. And, you know, that would have made it different. That would have would have changed the afternoon. But in the end, I, I thought Leeds played well enough to, to nick it. And and you come away with six points from nine games and, and feeling like they've made a very good start to this season. You said the second half reminded you of some of the best bits of last season. Had Robinson tapped that one in on 80, 81 minutes, whatever it was, from the corner, how much would it have reminded you of the worst bits of last season? To an extent. And I think, you, you, you know, analysis of, of these games, or at least the, the reaction to them, always depends on the scoreline and, and always depends on what goes on. And I, I think if, if that chance had crept in from the corner, which it, it so nearly did, then... You know, there would have been a certain amount of national teeth. I think there would have been a lot more focus on the way in which Sheffield United in the first half in particular were able to get at Leeds um, down Luke Ayling's side of the pitch. That's where the, the damage was being done. But I think it would have been really unjust. And I think if you'd, you know, if you'd taken a kind of dispassionate view of the game, I'd like to say I, I felt from half-time onwards, particularly with Rodrigo on the pitch, that Leeds had more about them and, and had more confidence, more self-assurance in the way that that they played, I, I I felt that Sheffield United were, were flagging slightly. And I suspect that the bottom line with Wilder's comments afterwards, you know, disputing Bielsa saying that, that he thought that the result was just, 
is that he'll be feeling the pressure slightly. I, I don't think he'll be feeling great about you know where Sheffield United are at the moment. I, I actually think for what it's worth, and, and we said this before the game, that they're not playing as badly as the results. And I don't think they've had as poor a start to the season as Fulham have, despite the fact that they're both on, on zero points at, at the bottom of the league. But you know, this wasn't how it went for them last season. They got going early on. They looked good. There was there was a lot of credit paid to them. And, and suddenly they're in that position where people inevitably are, are chuntering on about second season syndrome and asking if, if other teams are, are starting to work them out. So they could have nicked it and they, you know, it, it could have been their game. But I think on the balance of it, it was Leeds who deserved to win. We got into this a little bit on the Square Ball podcast earlier in the week when if you go onto SofaScore, they've got an app in the website and apologies if I'm repeating myself for anybody who's heard that, but they have like a bar graph of attacking momentum and that's really useful. It's quite a, as you say, dispassionate indicator of which way the game's gone and the strength of the attacks. And overwhelmingly, particularly in that second half, Leeds really had the momentum. These are the games you've got to win, aren't they? When you break it down with Man City on Saturday, which we'll we'll come on to that in a bit, but going to Bramall Lane, getting three points, it leaves us in a situation where, if you think about it, we probably only need to win maybe eight or nine more games this season and we're safe. Well, you would think so. And it, you could apply the same argument to Aston Villa going to Fulham on, on Monday night. If, if Villa are going to stay up and if they're going to stay up by a wider margin than they did last season when it was real skin of their teeth, then they have to be winning that sort of game. And, and they went there and, and wiped the floor with Fulham. And, and likewise for Leeds, th- there is a big difference between Anfield and, and Manchester City at home and Fulham at home and, and Sheffield United away. You, you know what the games you have to really target are. And it's not to say, and this you know, is kind of different to a lot of managers in that he, you know, he, he kind of prioritises every game, every league game in, in the same way. But, you know, the, the odds are against you when you're away at Liverpool. The odds will, despite what happened to City last weekend, be against Leeds this weekend. Although that just makes you think again, given the way the two teams are playing, that there could well be something in this for Leeds. And I think they'll they'll play with that, that kind of spirit and, and that optimism. Um, but yeah, you're right. If you're going to be comfortable and, and if you're going to make sure that it doesn't become dicey towards the end of the season, then particularly early on, this is where you make ground up. You know, this is where you, you get ahead. This is where you leave clubs behind. Um, and I think, you know, at this point, six points from nine was as much as any of us were, were expecting. I don't think any of us thought that was out of the question. You know, with Fulham at home and, and Sheffield United away, I think they, they look like games that you could expect to take something from. But it's not only that. I think it's the way that Leeds have played, the way that they've settled in quickly. I mean, Bielsa didn't want to talk about that afterwards. He said it was a little bit too early to, you know, to, to properly analyse how well they've adapted. But I think they have adapted. And I think beyond that, the ability to change the game with somebody like Rodrigo, who had, you know, by a mile his best game so far in, in the second half at Bramall Lane, just add the variation of touch and, and movement, which, which made it difficult for Sheffield United's defence in midfield. It, it isn't an extra string to the bow. And, and I feel that, you know, in large chunks of the three games so far, they've played well, Leeds. Um, and it's not purely about the results. It's not about the fact that the, the score lines in general look good. It's about the fact that actually they're looking like a Premier League team who can mix it with a lot of the others. That was my next question, actually. I was going to say, do you think this Sheffield United game was the one where we really started to bed in in the Premier League? Possibly because we're, we're up against a known quantity in Sheffield United. But I thought, we kind of got the novelty of the excitement and the, of the Liverpool game out of the way early doors. Then you got the first home game against Fulham. And this was the one where you thought, OK, we've kind of really relaxed into this division now. We know what we're up against. That, I think, was the message from the second half. I mean, if, if you go through the games and look at the way they've gone, and particularly tactically, you'll see that there's quite a big effort being made by opposition sides to, to stop Leeds playing. And, and by that, I don't mean to stop them having the ball necessarily, but to try and cut the, the block, the passing lanes to the midfield, to Phillips, to Cleek and so on. And in, in many situations, to try and force Leeds to go long. Fulham and Liverpool did it with a very high press. Sheffield United had more of a, a mid-block on Sunday. But the idea was the same, basically to limit the options when the ball comes out to the, the back four. And, and you found early on at, at Sheffield United that Leeds were going long and they were looking for diagonals and they were trying to bypass the midfield because the, the structure of the play and the, and the congestion in midfield meant that, that they had to. But you mentioned they're relaxing into the Premier League. I, I think in the second half, they relaxed back into their usual style and their usual performance as well. And I think that was as encouraging as anything in my eyes was the fact that the you know, the old system and the old tactics and the old style of play is working for them. You know, it is, it's kicked in again and, and it is working and it doesn't look at this stage like Bielsa is going to have to adapt massively. These players are going to have to be clever on the pitch and they are going to have to read what's going on and, 
if teams are pressing high and stopping them from playing out, then they are going to have to go via a different direction up the field. But it doesn't feel at this stage as if he is going to be forced to abandon much of, of what he's doing. And and that, I think, was the, the kind of question mark in everybody's head with Leeds coming up. Was it going to work in the same way, given that the tactics and the, the style is so ingrained? Or actually, were they going to find that it didn't work so well and, and suddenly Bielsa was under pressure to change or, or alter his system, which he... He never does. And, and I just thought they, they looked extremely comfortable in their skin at Bramall Lane. And, and as I say, I, I, I don't think there's any argument about who deserved the win. A little bit too soon for Llorente. But in terms of the other new boys, I thought Cock was fantastic uh, at the back, along with Liam Cooper on Sunday. And a word, yeah, for Rodrigo, who you, you touched on earlier there. He seemed to settle into it in that second half. He seems to be kind of getting there. Still some moments where it's not quite connecting, but you can see the, the intelligence he's got as a footballer. It just felt a little as if he'd kind of learned in the first two or three weeks about what it's like over here, the, the speed that the Premier League moves at, and I think the speed that Leeds and, and Bielsa play at. And I thought you could see a, a slightly different level of anticipation and, and invention with him that wasn't really there in the first half against Fulham. And as I say, it was very difficult against Fulham because they were they were high up the pitch, so feeding the ball to him and, and giving him regular possession was extremely difficult. Uh, but it does. It, it looks as if the, the penny's dropping um, in, in the sense of how he has to adapt and how he has to go from a, a Valencia team who really didn't press at all and, and didn't apply that tactic with any regularity to a team who, who will do that all season. Um, and you're right about Robin Cock as well. I mean, it was a difficult couple of weeks for him, the, the Liverpool game and the Fulham game. But I think, again, Bielsa didn't think that he, he really needed time to settle in, but I would say that he probably did. You know, it was a, it was a late arrival here it's a completely new defence for him to slip into. It's a it's a different league that he's not used to. And you know, a team like Liverpool, for example, it's a higher level and a higher standard than virtually everybody in Germany, with the exception of Bayern Munich. So it doesn't surprise me that it's been a, a little bit of a slow burn there. But I again, I I thought he was as good as anybody on Sunday. And and little by little, you are starting to see the sort of shades of, of Ben White in him, this, the similar skills and the, the similar attributes and. That was why Leeds went for him. They, they couldn't get White. They weren't going to be able to do that deal. But they wanted somebody who was essentially a, a mirror image in, in the way he played. And, you know, on that evidence so far, they, they look like two very good signings. Where do you see Pablo fitting back into the team? I thought the second half performance probably was enough to keep Rodrigo in the first team for now. And while I'm sure Bielsa would probably have introduced him at a, a slower pace than this, do you think he's got a good chance of keeping his place? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that will help him. I think Robert's performance in the first half will help him as well. It, it wasn't particularly effective. Hernandez is, a, is an interesting one. I mean, it, it cannot be a bad thing really to take the pressure off Hernandez and to kind of move on from the period we've been in for two, three seasons now where it feels as if any time you're, you're after that touch of creativity or touch of magic, it, it has to come from Hernandez because it's a little unlikely to come from anybody else. I, I do feel like you've seen growth in other players on the pitch, you know, particularly Clayton and Harrison. Um, and Costa's had a very good start as well. But if Rodrigo's playing like that, and if and, and if Rodrigo can, can play like that consistently and, and be as good as he should be at £27 million, then suddenly the, the need to rely on Hernandez heavily or to lean too heavily on somebody who is 35 and, you know, again, injury problems already at the start of this season is, is no bad thing. And I, I mean, Hernandez won't see it like that because Hernandez will not want to sit on the bench. He'll, he'll want to play. He'll want to be as influential as he's been previously. And, and because it's back in the Premier League, you know, he'll have even more appetite for that. I think certainly when Dan and I went to speak to him at Thorpe Arch, he didn't get the sense at all of a player who was putting himself into reverse gear or, or slowing down um, with the years ticking on, I, I think he's been been looking forward to this season and will be immensely frustrated that you know this injury is keeping him out for a few weeks and is going to cost him the game against Manchester City at the weekend as well. But yeah, I, I, I don't think Hernandez walks back into this team at the moment. But in the, in many ways, that's what Leeds have needed. You know, they've needed to get to a point where the depth of the side is is slightly greater than it has been previously, and and Rodrigo could be an answer to that. A word about two people who also stood out on Sunday, um, Bamford and Melier. First, Patrick Bamford, all credit to him for the step up that he's made since we got promoted to the Premier League and become a lot more clinical and looking a lot more dangerous. Yeah, I, I just mentioned Dallas as well in that, who, you know, the, the system on Sunday was was this system that Bielsa plays from time to time in which 
Jack Harrison seems to handle the entire left side of the pitch and Stuart Dallas plays in this floating, you know, undefined role, which leaves you struggling to work out what the formation is, you know, beyond the back three. And and I hear people regularly say this, that to watch Leeds, it, it looks very chaotic and yet somehow it's controlled. And, and to a large degree, it's, it's often difficult to understand how it is that the players get to grips with that and, and cope with it. And I, I thought Dallas had a, a terrific game and, and was really effective in that role he was given. But... Bamford, I mean, I, I said before that I spoke to Bamford's dad um, for a, a piece on the Monday after the, the game at Liverpool and he was trying to make the point that, that Bamford has been in the Premier League before and he has been, to all intents and purposes, a Premier League striker. But he's never gone up with this sort of consistency behind him. He's never gone up with a good season and a half in the team behind him before and he has absolutely never reached the Premier League with a coach behind him with as much faith in him as, as Bielsa seems to have. And it was... It was a bit of a replica of Anfield and Ellen Road against Fulham on Sunday. There weren't many chances for him. He, he didn't see a, a huge amount of the ball. He covered a massive amount of ground, off, often quite thanklessly. But 88th minute, there he was, lovely cross from Harrison. And just what Bamford always does, which is really good movement, to just drop behind Jack Robinson. And from Wilder's point of view, he'll look at that as, as Robinson losing Bamford. But if you watch the move, it's just clever from Bamford to position himself and, and to gamble on the possibility that, that Harrison is going to lay that on a plate, which he did. And, you know, I, I would think that Rodrigo himself will be in that team and thinking that at the moment there's very little chance of him playing as number nine while Bamford is fit because it, it is Bamford's shirt and it's going to stay that way for a while. But what was noticeable on Sunday was the way that actually the two of them were able to link up and, and the way that the two of them were able to fit into the same 11. And, you know, that that needed to happen really because we all knew that, that Bielsa would stick with Bamford. We all knew that his faith wouldn't diminish Overnight, and if he can piece the two of them together, then then so much the better. And Spider Boy as well, Iliam Melier, a fantastic performance. I think he's best one in a lead shirt. What do you reckon? Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. I've got a piece running um, this week on him, and it interested me coming away from Bramall Lane. I was thinking about him and, and how young he is, and he's he's twenty years old. And I decided to pick through the the average age of the keepers in um, the Premier League last weekend, and and the average age across the twenty clubs was twenty nine. You know, really sort of solid age. And you were going up as high as thirty nine for Caballero at, at Chelsea. There are another five or six who are over the age of, of thirty. Um, and Bielsa is breaking convention with him massively by playing a twenty year old who doesn't have experience of this division, doesn't really have a huge amount of first-team experience full stop. You know, he he did have 20-odd games at Lorient in the second division in France before he came over here, and he obviously had the run at the back end of last season as well. But this is pretty new to him, and, and you know, it's a completely different world up in, in the Premier League. You know, Casilla is still in the building, and it does look like Casilla is going to stay, and it, it feels as if he still has Bielsa's confidence and that Bielsa is still happy for him to be around in, in spite of everything. So it's not as if... Bielsa has necessarily been forced into this, you know, unequivocally. There, there is an alternative for him, and, and there was another option, which was to sign somebody else in the the summer transfer window. But I think if you go to back to January, it tells a bit of a story. The club were aware at that point that Casilla was looking at a lengthy ban and, and that he might well get hit, and um, with six to ten games for the the racism charge. So that was their opportunity to to sign somebody else to to provide sort of experience cover, and and they didn't. You know, they signed um, Elia Caprio from Chievo in, in Italy, 18-year-old who, more than anything else, was falling in behind Mesley in the pecking order. You know, wasn't even really direct competition at that point. And I think that kind of told you that Bielsa had seen enough in Mesley to think that, that he was a, a first-team goalkeeper. And, you know, he just doesn't... Bielsa just doesn't really give in to the concept of experience or age being a factor. He, he just tends to look at players and decide whether they're, they're talented enough or not. And, I mean, even take out that save from Lundstrom... The basics with Mesley look very good. You know, he, he is just he is just a steady keeper, you know, aside from the, the spectacular moments. Good distribution, good with his hands, good with the all-round aspects of, of the game. And I think as somebody said to me this week, you know, sometimes steady wins the race in the Premier League when it comes to goalkeepers. And you kind of see that at other clubs as well. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
We'll do the Q&A for you in just a bit here on the Phil Hay Show, but welcome to a hastily re-recorded bit. Uh, We'd done the bit on Michael Cuisance uh, earlier in the day, and we were happily chatting away, you, me and Michael, Phil, about uh, how great a deal it was for Leeds. Again, another cracking player through the door, and we are now sat down recording again uh, about an hour after this has reportedly collapsed. So can you give us the very latest on this? Yes, not even reportedly collapsed, but 100% collapsed. As, as we speak, he's flying back to Germany. The deal is off and absolutely will, will not be happening. You can tell how close it was uh, on the basis that he was here and he was undergoing a medical and leads to the greed of fee with Bayern Munich um, on, on Tuesday night. And as far as all sides were concerned, this was a, this was a goal. You know, this was signing number new signing number four at Leeds. Um, it, it would cross the line. It would... It would get him get him in the door, and it would, in theory, be an, an excellent sign. I mean, you know, I'll get into the details of what's going on shortly, but I, I have to say that I do think it was the right sort of player for them to be targeting. You know, he, he's incredibly gifted, talented player who I think does need some polishing, does need some honing, has had scrapes in the past, and you know, questions raised about his attitude, but you know, fundamentally, has a huge amount of ability, um, and I think would have been a, a very in in full fitness and and in in you know. Real, really sharp would have been a very good addition to Leeds midfield in terms of his ability to play at ten, and and but also to drop deeper and to to pull the strings and to use his range of passing to to spread the play. Our understanding is that he's there are issues with the medical. Um, he, in Leeds' eyes, he's failed it. There are the problems with it that that they're too concerned about to push ahead with this. He, he would have been taken on a, a very long contract. They'd obviously have been paying around about twenty million pounds for him. But I think more importantly, they were concerned that if you know, there were any sort of lingering side effects from this. If there was a, a greater problem that required them to have time out or to, to have surgery or, or anything like that, then he was potentially going to be looking at a period out of the team. And, and we know how difficult it is to get up to speed on the Bielsa at the best of times. Um, and I think essentially got cold feet this afternoon. That There is talk in Germany that there were issues um, between Leeds and, and Bayern Munich in terms of the financial structure of the deal. But our information was, and, and still is, at The Athletic, that, that the fee was agreed on Tuesday, you know, as of Tuesday evening. The two sides were, were happy with the position, they were happy with the offer. There was going to be a buyback clause in the contract which would um, would have given Bayern Munich the, the right to, to repurchase him further down the line if he developed in the way um, that they thought he might do. And I, th- I think that tells you that them selling him wasn't indicative of the fact that they didn't rate him uh, or, or didn't value his potential or his talent. It was purely a case of Cuisance wanting to move somewhere where he would play more often. And, you know, if you track his career, he, he is somebody who, who seems very dead set on getting what he wants. You know, he, he got himself out of Nancy in slightly fractious circumstances and, and likewise at, at Mönchengladbach. Uh, when he went to Bayern Munich. And, you know, this is a player who is essentially asked to leave the, the reigning European champions, asked to leave one of the, the biggest clubs on the continent because of the offer that was coming to him from Bielsa and from Leeds. But it was going to be an expensive investment. That, that, you know, as, as we understand it, there were clear issues with his medical and, and issues that Leeds just were not willing to, to accept. So is that what we think is? It's some sort of underlying thing that's been picked up in the medical and Leeds have said, well, no, at that money... There's no point. And what you've said there, Phil, as well, is absolutely right, because to all intents and purposes, it doesn't really put him in a better position than Adam Forshaw if he's going to be out injured or you know having to recover and get up to speed. No, absolutely. And, and that's not to say that that would have been the case. You know, I mean, bear in mind that he had been on the bench for Bayern Munich um, right through the, the Champions League run. Um, he'd played for them towards the end of last season. He'd been involved again at, towards the, the beginning of, of this season in the, the Bundesliga. So it's not to say that, that there necessarily would have been an issue straight away or, or that there would have been an issue at all. But the thing that clubs do in medicals is not only assess the sort of general condition of players and their bloods and you know all the joints and, and everything else, they look for anything that might suggest or, or hint at problems further down the line, anything that might look like it, it could become an issue. And they're extremely stringent these days. You know, they, they do check everything. They do double check everything. They're, they're very, very careful to make sure that if, you know... that. The way to look at this is that Leeds were about to, for the third time this summer, either equal or beat the transfer record that has stood for 20 years. You know, Rio Ferdinand's move from, from West Ham at £80 million. And it's quite easy when you when you start to get into the realm of dealing in those figures regularly that you forget how much money it is. But it was going to be a big investment. You know, it was going to be a, a sizable amount of cash paid. And if there were concerns, then like you say, it, it doesn't really help Bielsa at all to have a player who potentially might not be available to him for 
for a stretch if if things were to go to go wrong and and that seems to be the way the thought process has has gone today and there's a really interesting moment with Bielsa at his press conference which kind of makes me wonder now whether or not he knew you know whether he knew that in the background things weren't a hundred percent right because he was asked about Quisons and you know at that stage our assumption was that it was all going to go ahead as planned and he, he just said you know I, I don't want to comment on this because I don't want another Dan James situation and you know people remember the James deal falling through at the last minute 2019 uh, and you know we all laughed at that he laughed it, it was quite a sort of light jovial moment but you just question now whether actually he was being cautious deliberately because he wondered whether this would go ahead or whether actually he might find that, that he and the club were rowing back before long and can you just sort of put to bed the other side of this which seems to be and are these noises coming out of Germany that it was the structure of the deal that was an issue? You're saying it's definitely the medical. Our understanding is it's definitely the medical. Yeah, both both me and, and David Onstein have been told that. And the issue over the fee wouldn't make sense on the basis that it was, you know, it was reported by us. It was reported by outlets in Germany and, and also in Italy that the the, the, the the fee for Cuisance was agreed on Tuesday night. And I 100% believe that to be Correct, and I think it's you know highly unlikely that he would have flown into England yesterday to start a medical had Leeds and, and Bayern Munich not been at that point because the, there were other offers in for Cuisance. There are you know other clubs looking at him. It is still possible that Marseille will try and do something with him um, because they did want to take him, but clearly they would have to assess him medically as well. So no, I mean our understanding was that Leeds were prepared to pay the fee of around twenty million pounds. They were prepared to include in the deal a buyback clause um, given Bayern Munich essentially first dibs on, on Cuisance if, if they decided they wanted to take him back further down the line and, and that this was all ready to go ahead. And as far as Leeds were concerned, when he landed in England yesterday, it was a formality to put him through the medical um, and to get the paperwork finished and, and to announce him um, at some point today. But it hasn't happened, it won't happen, and it's not even a, a sort of a equivocal, this deal is in, in trouble. You know, all sides are accepting that it's off. The big question now then is what next for Leeds? What do we do from here? Because the window shuts in a matter of sort of three or four days at the time we record this. They're going to have to move quickly if they're to get something done. They are. I mean, I mean they they have an issue with, you know, recruiting for Bielsa in that he's he's very stringent about what he looks for. He's he's very, you know, he's very strict in terms of what ticks his boxes and, and what doesn't. Um, they will have alternatives. And, and I mean, the the way that, that Victor Otter works with transfers is that he does keep long lists for the different positions that they that they go looking for. And essentially the reason for that is that if if Brighton say no to three bids from Ben White, then you know that Robin Cock fills the position at centre back in much the same way and you can you can go go to Freiburg straight away and to say to them, Look, we want to get this deal done and then you can you can get it complete in, in the space of a week. And and that's really these days how you have to operate. Otherwise you do find yourself in a scenario where you put your eggs in one basket, um, the, the eggs break and you're left with, with nothing at all. Clearly it's different in a scenario like Dan James in that by the time that ran aground, they were into the literally the last minutes of um, of the window and, and there was no chance in, in any way of them doing another deal or finding an alternative. This does leave them a bit of time, but in terms of you know foreign transfers before the, the deadline on Monday, it doesn't leave them a lot. So they're, they're either going to have to move quickly with this or they're, they're going to have to sit tight if they don't think there's anybody out there they can get um, either at the right price or, or who fits Bielsa's specifications. But it'll be tenser than it was because I think as of yesterday morning, they would have thought that this one was done and this one was you know in the bag and just needed the, the I's dotted and the T's crossed. But as it is, we're, we're back to three signings and waiting to see what happens before Monday. Thanks for that update, Phil. We'll get back to the show as it was originally recorded and please excuse any future mentions of uh, Michael Cuisance in, uh, in this show and I hope they don't make you too sad. A quick tangent now related to the kits. We are speaking in the wake of the new maroon. Uh, no surprises there. Then third kit being released with digital camouflage. Could it be best be described as that? Let's have a listen to what Angus Kinnear said when we spoke to him a little earlier on in the summer in the wake of promotion with regards to kits. On kits and, and the kits will be coming out in the next few weeks. If we get it right, there will be some things which a younger audience will love and they'll embrace and it will buy them into leads. And at the same time, it will probably offend some traditionalists and we have to accept that. The shirt market is a very broad church. You know, you've got women, men, two-year-olds, 72-year-olds. So the idea is to come up with a uh, with a range of kits which appeal to all those groups uh, on a 
the club's heritage, but all the sort of some time, you know, move us forward. And in the same way that I know, you know, people who were who were in their teens in the seventies will love a yellow kit or, or, or will always want to be classic, classic white. I think there will be people growing up in twenty years' time and their favourite kit will be the charcoal and pink kit where Leeds won the league. That's over on the Square Ball podcast if you uh, you want to catch up with that chat that we had uh, with Angus Kinnear, Leeds United CEO, a little earlier in the summer. Maroon kit then. What do you think? I'll come to you first, Michael. Uh, you're not going to be buying it. I know you're not. <laughs> I thought you were coming to me as a representative of the young and fashionable people of, of Leeds. It's all right, isn't it? I'm not too bothered. It's it's fine. It's inoffensive and it's not too red. I think that was the main concern when we heard it was going to be uh, maroony burgundy kind of tone is that it could be edging towards a, a Man United red but I think it's a long way from that You like it Phil? Hearts and all that? Yes I've said before not enough maroon kits in this universe um, so thumbs up from me I never make any secret of this I'm too old and too fat to wear football kits anymore and slightly too old to to care um, the, I mean the, the the point of interest for me in, in the kit deals is, is always, you know, the, the kind of finances of it and the, the extent to to which they sell. And that's been the point, I think, the last two seasons. Both of the away kits have been slightly out there, particularly the, the charcoal and pink one. But the numbers speak for themselves and, and they do pile out the door. And, you know, it's the, the reaction to the kits always make me laugh because no matter how it looks, you get people who love it, you get people who hate it. Yeah, people who are in the middle and some people who just aren't interested in the slightest about about what it looks like. But I suspect that it will do well because it is different and different kits do tend to to succeed in the market. So hopefully people are are happy with it. But the only thing I would say, and I I think this every year, is that if you don't, then the chances are there'll be some new kits out next summer. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We'll get the very latest from Bielsa's press conference this week in just a bit. First of all, let's do the Phil Hay Q&A. 07899555459 is our WhatsApp number if you want to get involved with this. Or if you can't remember the number, go to the squareball.net forward slash WhatsApp and that will open the app for you and fill out the number. Speaking of Bielsa, loads of people asking questions about him. So we'll just pluck one out of the, um, out of the, the draw here and uh, we'll play David's question. How are you lads? Uh, Robbie Kane here. Just wondering, Phil, what you think the factors are that would impact Bielsa staying on for you know a couple of years. It's probably hard to predict, but um, I kind of worried that the more he feels his work is being done well, the more likely he is to move on and hand it over. But he stayed a few years with Argentina and Chile. What do you think was different about them to other club roles that he had that made him move on? Hopefully he stays forever, forever and ever. And Rob Price recreates him into some kind of clone. Lovely voice that character's got. I don't know why I said it was David, because he identified himself as Robbie Keane. Yeah, hi, Robbie. Uh, Gordon Strachan here. It's amazing, isn't it? it? It takes until the Friday morning before Anfield for Bielsa to sign his new contract, and then already we're, we're starting to think and think about and, and discuss if and when he, he might go from the club. I don't think Leeds would ever count on him being here for longer than the 12 months that he's signed up for, they would have said that at the start of the first season. They would have been more confident, I think, last summer that they would have got a second year from him had they been promoted, but certainly wouldn't have counted on a third year in the championship. And I think even now, they would feel like they were presumptuous if they were to say that this was going to be a long-term thing with him, regardless of, of how it goes this season. What was quite telling, I thought, during the summer was that unlike the previous year, um, at the end of Bielsa's first season, when Leeds you know, thought seriously about what they were going to do if Bielsa left because there was a, a you know a, a genuine chance that he might. And they they thought about Slavisa Jukanovic, they thought about Aitor Karanka, you know, kind of proven championship coaches who'd been promoted before. They were the, the sort of options that, that or the avenues that they, they were thinking they would go down if Bielsa said no to him. But but this summer there was no discussion about that at all. There was no shortlist, there was no effort made to engage other managers and, and that was predominantly because Leeds were confident from the outset and, and pretty much certain from the outset that Bielsa would stay and would sign up for another 12 months 
I know that going back to the early stages of Bielsa's reign, they took a, a definite shine to Lee Boyer um, down at Charlton. Now, I think without question, things have moved on from there and Leeds have moved on as a club and and um, have moved on in, in status terms as well from the Championship to the Premier League. Um, and, and I find it hard to imagine that, that Boyer would be a candidate now if, if that job was to come up. But but it is essentially the million-dollar question. You know, How do you replace somebody as, as singular and, and as fixed in the methods as that, somebody who's built a team which is so much in his image um, as opposed to, you know, a, a generic football side that, that any manager could pick up. The one thing that I think might make it easy easier in terms of transition is that previously in the Championship, the team that's been created and, and the players that, that Bielsa's used have been in his style 100%. And, and it's players who have, have been moulded and, and changed to fit into what he wants to do. And, and he will do that with, with the new signings who've come in. But I think when you start to talk about players like Rodrigo and um, Llorente, Robin Koch, I, I think you start to move away from a group of players who have been drilled, drilled, drilled in, in the Bielsa way to players who actually will be able to play the Bielsa way and should be able to thrive under him, but would be very adaptable for another coach as well. So where they would go after Bielsa, I don't know. I'd, I'd, I'm not entirely sure if Leeds would be 100% certain what would be the best way to go if he was to leave. And it, as, as ever, it depends on circumstances. It depends where you are in the season, where you are in the league, whether or not it's the, the summer um, when it's a changeover and you've got more time to think about things. Um, but it, you know, we always said that, that Leeds was about a, as difficult a job as there was um, in European football. And I think succeeding Bielsa seems to me like the most difficult task going, bar a few others. I don't know about you, Michael, but I just cannot contemplate a future without Bielsa at the minute. I'm trying to just enjoy it for what it is, but it, it feels like it's the elephant in the room, which is probably why we get so many questions on it. I feel like it's the sort of discussion you generally have at a club when a manager's been there for 20 years or so, like a Wenger or a Ferguson type who's, you know, who's built an entire club in their image over decades. Whereas with Bielsa, we're having this discussion after two seasons, even though he's, generally speaking, you're there for that long, you don't create much of an impact. But he's, I think he has transformed the club so much. It's, a, it's already, you would probably describe it as a bit of a poison chalice for the next person. It feels as well like such a tight marriage between him and the support in a way that I haven't seen in the time that I've been covering the club. Um, and, and only other people could tell me if it was ever like this with O'Leary or with Wilkinson or, or going back further than that to, to the, the Reavy era. It's developed in a way where I think people are at a loss to to imagine what it will feel like if he's not there, if, if at his press conferences you don't have the, the slightly awkward and, and complex translation, if it's not him doing what he does in the dugout. If, if more to the point, it's, it's not the team playing as they play. For him, it's, it's become very hard to to visualise you know, the, the future beyond him. And, and in no small part because of what he's done and, and because of the fact that, that he, he in the end, was was what it took to get Leeds out of the Championship, to not only get a, you know, to get a hold of the club, but to keep it together um, and to keep it together over two seasons in, in the way that he did. So nobody's irreplaceable, but I think you, you're best with him to go from a starting point of, of accepting that you cannot find a Bielsa clone. You know, you cannot find a replica for this guy. You're going to have to, in some respects, go in a different direction when the point does come where you need to change. They don't call them the widows of Bielsa in Chile for nothing. Uh, I kind of understand that feeling already, but let's enjoy the here and now then, shall we? And thank you to everybody else who sent questions in about Bielsa, including Tom, we had Jono, Jack, Dan, James as well. Dan and James or Dan James? Always a sign. I I couldn't possibly tell you that. That's That's a secret. Watch this space, people. Stop it, Phil, because people will say you're in the know now and then you know something's going on. That's what happened. Massive flood of tweets. <laughs> right, let's do a question on transfers, actually, from Rory. Hi, Phil. At the beginning of the transfer window, it seemed apparent that the club would be going after top-end championship players. Is there any reason why that changed? And do you think we've done better by signing from top divisions across Europe? Didn't identify himself as Robbie Keane. However, in answer to that question, Phil, it's something we mentioned last week that this has been used as a bit of a stick to beat you with on Twitter because you kind of just reported what you've been told that the club would be shopping sort of top end championship sort of ballpark. However, they're very much focused on European talent. So explain yourself, hey. Not even just European talent. I mean, top end European talent. I was chatting to a colleague of mine about this the other day and he was saying that back sort of March, April, we did a, a quick chat with 
Otter about you know what was likely to come in the summer after the, the COVID shutdown. And, and Otter had been of the view that it would be heavily loan-based, the, the transfer window. There would be a lot of temporary deals because of the way things are and because of the financial constraints on clubs. Um, and it hasn't really worked out in that way at all. And, and there has been a lot of money spent at, at Premier League level. I've said it before and I'll, I'll say it again. It, it was the indication we were given was was that they would look you know, predominantly at the Championship, at your players like Ollie Watkins, who it isn't, you know, it isn't a secret that they were interested in him and, and did look at him, and Ben Rama as well. But it, it just feels as if the opportunities that have thrown themselves up, particularly abroad, and, and bear in mind that, you know, the move for Robin Cock was on the back of them failing to get Ben White. White was the, the kind of number one target for them. Um, and Cock was somebody who'd been in the background for a while, somebody that, that Alter had been been scouting, but was, you know, was very much second on the list in that sense. But when it, when it becomes apparent that you can do Rodrigo and Rodrigo will come to the Premier League and it's got to be done and there have been other players that they've looked at they've been like um, Ijara for example who, who went from Liverpool to Reading is, is someone who, who was interested in them but you cannot really put him next to Cuisance and say that there's you know there's any debate to be had and I think in the end it was like that with Rodrigo and Ollie Watkins they, they would have done Ollie Watkins quite happily although I think they felt that his fee was absolutely maximum valuation at £28 million. I think they felt like it was it was getting expensive for him. But given that Rodrigo was there to be done and Rodrigo was Spain's number nine with his track record and, and the experience he had in, in comparison to Watkins, it was very hard to argue that the way to go was to pay Brentford £28 million. Quid. Um, so it does feel like there's been a, a kind of change attack. Um, and who knows, perhaps the club were planning this all along and perhaps they were, they were kind of leading us up the garden path. But I would say it didn't feel like it. You know, it didn't feel like it when the season ended. It did feel as if the, the kind of championship model was was what they were thinking of, domestic recruits, which kind of worked well for Bielsa already. And low profile, if you want, or, or low ego, um, which again is, is something that he wants in his dressing room. But I mean, none of these things are predictable and, and sometimes transfers that look good on paper turn out to be to be poor or, or to fail further down the line. But I think as we look at it now, there'd be very few people who would argue that, that Leeds have got it wrong so far or, or have made obvious mistakes. How do the salaries compare of someone like Watkins or Ben Rama compared to, say, Cuisance and Rodrigo? Well, something like Rodrigo will be on considerably more than, than Watkins. That that goes without saying. And Cuisance's wage at uh, at Bayern Munich will not be inconsiderable either. I mean, people will know that when Augustine came from Leipzig on loan, his wage over in Germany was in the region of £90,000 a week, which gives you some idea of, of what you can earn as even, you know, not a, a sort of necessarily frontline player with a big European club. But but then you swerve towards somebody like Rodrigo de Paul, for example, at Udinese, who by all accounts is not on a big wage over there. And, you know, personal terms would have been very, very easy with him. That wasn't ever going to be the problem. Um, so it's not to say that players coming in from Europe are earning a, a mint purely because they're coming from Europe. You know, it, it does vary massively and it'll vary from, from club to club. And and from what we were hearing at the time when Watkins was, was about to go for £28 million, they were talking about him being paid somewhere between fifty and £70,000 a week, which is no small wage and is a you know, considerable burden on your wage bill, um, even in, in the Premier League. So it might be that they're paying out more, it may be that they're paying out quite a bit more because of the business that they've done, but it does feel as if it, it's kind of all within budget. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the last week or two of the transfer window, particularly in relation to championship clubs, because you look at the likes of, for example, Ben Rama, who's still at Brentford, and there's quite a hefty price tag on his head. And you imagine there's a bit of a financial squeeze, particularly because we're looking at not getting fans back into stadiums uh, for, what, six months or thereabouts. So... It'll be interesting to see if some of those demands do drop. There is a squeeze, but there's still a lot of money being spent and it doesn't feel as if too many clubs are, are being constrained to, to a huge degree. I mean, the spending at Leeds, when you factor in uh, Helder Costa and Ila Mesley, who've, who've both come permanently this summer, it's pretty much at £100 million now. You know, it, it has been a big outlay and, and, you know, it's important to repeat this point, I think, it, before anybody compares that to... Fulham or, or Aston Villa of one or two seasons ago, it, it the, the one thing that Leeds haven't bent on and, and haven't changed is the numbers that they've been looking at. You know, in terms of permanent arrivals, we're at four at the moment. We were saying at the start of the window it was looking like four or five tops. And if they get a winger, I think that will be them done. But I don't feel as if they I don't feel as if there's an urgency at Ellen Road which says that they have to get a winger at all costs. I think if nothing comes up that suits them, they would rather leave it and, and would rather not spend. 
but that to my mind will be it. I don't see um, anything else changing in, unless there were to be some late departures of, of fringe players. And, you know, that that could happen. But again, there's, there's nothing really in the in the offing at the moment. And because you have this kind of domestic window after the, the October 5th deadline when players could move to the, the EFL and and so on, it's not to say that the business will stop bang on um, October the 5th. You know, there could still be movement after that. But in terms of serious and, and major incomings, they're almost done, Leeds. And, and I felt as if the pressure was off them from the point at which they landed um, Robin Cock and, and Rodrigo, because those were the ones, really. Those were the positions that had to be covered. And it wasn't that they wanted to get to the window without other players in. It was just that if if they had to settle for two, if there were two that they had to get, then then it needed to be somebody up front and somebody in the centre of defence. Flowing from that question, then, is one from Tom. With the significant spending we've done over the summer... What finishing position do you think would represent a success from Andrea Redrazani's and Victor Orta's point of view? I don't know how you gauge that, really. I think I think you have to be slightly vague in saying that finishing 12th and finishing 14th or finishing 15th doesn't necessarily mean that one season has been better and one season has been worse. And I know that sounds a bit contradictory, but I always imagine Bielsa looking at a league table and potentially saying to himself, look, we finished 12th, but actually we didn't play as well as that. Or we finished 15th, but I think our football was better. You know, I'm actually more satisfied than, than people might be with the table. I think having spent £100 million and, and, and not only spent the money, but invested it in internationals or borderline full internationals who are coming from, you know, high level elite European clubs, I think you have to do an awful lot better than to be in the tangle of a messy relegation fight, regardless of, of whether you survive. I, I think Bielsa, I, I felt he had the tactics anyway to have a good go at the league and, and to, to make a good fist of finishing in a comfortable position, potentially bottom half, um, but, you know, away from, from the bottom three. I, I, I honestly do feel that with the signings they've made, He's in a stronger position again. And I, I think he now has the resources he needs, you know, to make sure that that happens and to make sure that Leeds are away from trouble. And I don't think Brad Rosani and, and Orta would, would be sitting saying, look, we need to finish 12th or we need to finish top half. But I think they will expect that come February, come March, come that point of the year where you're either in trouble or you're heading for a, you know, a, a sort of calm, steady finish. Um, I think they will expect that, that by that point, Leeds are in good shape. And I think Bielsa would hope for that too. And let's not forget that from a director's point of view, every league place is worth a couple of million quid this year with the increased um, merit payments from the Premier League because there's extra foreign TV money being carved up amongst the league placings as well. So there's even greater incentive to finish higher up the league. So they might well take 12th over 14th, Phil. They might do, although I, I would challenge you to have that discussion with Bielsa. Right, Terry's got one for you now then. Hi, Phil. Obviously, you're a Hearts fan, but I just wanted to know, do you actually wear any league shirts or do you own any league shirts that you have worn? And if not, will the new Hearts-inspired maroon number be your first? I do own a league shirt, but only courtesy of Adidas, who very kindly sent me a freebie about two or three weeks ago. And um, they, they were very charitable and sent me a medium, which is going to require a bit of running around the block before... It gets used. I'm sadly at that age where um, football shirts are, are generally no longer than me. Um, honest answer, no, I don't think I'll I'll be going to buy the Maroon Effort, but I am quite a fan of the Maroon Effort. I know her opinion was divided and I don't know what you two think about it, but something something tells me it'll, it'll sell pretty well and that without doubt Maroon is the colour. Yeah, I mean, we did mention it just before there, didn't we? I mean, it's a shirt, it's fine. There'll be a different one in another eight months. <laughs> Not bothered. <laughs> Alan's got a question then. Uh, hi lads, uh, it's Alan here from uh, from Berlin via Beeston. The other day was the anniversary of a, a fantastic mixed grill that uh, myself and Michael uh, consumed on the way back from Carlisle away in 2008. So it's got me thinking, now we're looking back on those 16 years away, what was the best bit of scran you had on an away day? It's all champagne and oysters, isn't it, for you now? You're in the Premier League, surely? It bloody isn't, because the, the press rooms aren't open. No, there's there's no food. They, they give us a bottle of water, which is which is very kind. Um, so it's a it's a little like being in prison, with with fantastic entertainment in front of you. Um, the the best food by a mile was always on the rare occasions where we were let loose and allowed into Premier League grounds, like last season when we went to Arsenal and and all of us from Leeds stood around staring at the cake while all the regulars down there. Said to us, "What's the big deal? You know, this is what we this is what we do every week." I mean, you, 
Leicester, for example, you get amazing cheese boards and fish and chips and everything else, free bar. Um, Manchester City, it's um, it's big roast on a Sunday morning. It can be very, very impressive and, and a bit like everything in the Premier League. You feel as if there's a lot of one-upmanship. So every time somebody improves the standard of the hospitality, everybody else feels the need to go in that direction as well. But no press food at the moment. We're, um, we're all on rations. I'm intrigued by the other end of it as well. What's the worst? I'm, I'm hoping for some sort of League One horror show where they just give you a slice of dry white bread or something. Well, back in the day, a former um, sports editor of mine wrote a piece uh, for the Evening Post criticising the press food at Ellen Road, to which Ken Bates withdrew it. And for about two or three years, we were left with polystyrene cups and tea and coffee. And I have to say, in terms of what you served up at a football ground, it's never got an awful lot worse than that. Cheese boards, though. You're an absolute... What a monster you are. What a monster. Right, um, let's do a question from George. Hi, Phil. If you weren't the athletics journalist for Leeds United... Which other club in the Premier League would you most like to be the journalist for? Cheers. This has got the potential to be Angus Kinnear not dicking around with the playoffs level material, so I'm going to enjoy this one. Yeah, this this has got a world of trouble written all over it. Um, I, I was hoping that the question would be generally which club would you like to cover, and, and you'd expect me to say Hearts, although I honestly could not stand the thought of four games a season against the same club over and over and over again um, and if he, if the world was my oyster I, I would like to to cover football in Germany you know I'd like to cover the Bundesliga it's always been one of my one of my favourite leagues who else in the Premier League be very very careful here how am I going to answer this without upsetting people do you know what I'll, I'll go for Newcastle A because my in-laws live there and B, because they seem to have the sort of abject misery which I, I grew fairly accustomed to at Leeds um, over 16 years. So if nothing else, I'll, I'll be sort of acclimatised for what I'm going to encounter up there. You miss the bastards, don't you? <laughs> Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Bielsa, favorite topic of ours here on the podcast. We've had the press conference ahead of Man City. What is he saying then in the run-up to this game and what can we expect from the game itself? Well, team news-wise... The big decision for him is and was always going to be replacing Jack Harrison um, on loan from City, so ineligible uh, and unavailable for the weekend, which is unfortunate, really, because I think in a game as difficult as this, he is he, he's one of the sort of 100 percenters really, you know, in, in very good form, cross for the goal at, at Sheffield United, somebody you, that Bielsa just never, ever thinks about dropping, but he can't play, those are the rules. Um, so it's going to be Alioski who comes into the team, come to Bielsa today anyway, that seems to be what's what's on his mind. And still no sign of Pablo Hernandez. He'll have another week, another couple of weeks to to get himself fit. You know, I think we, we will see Alioski play on the left-hand side. And I would assume after the second half of Bramall Lane that we'll see Rodrigo start um, in midfield as well. What do you think VAR is going to do Alioski for? Will it be biting, licking an opponent? We did get on to speaking about this with Bielsa. And he's, he's always very careful in what he says because he, he never wants to give the impression that he knows better than anybody else or... And I think it's quite quite a key point. All that he's got the solution, you know, a simple one size fits all solution to what is a massively complex argument and um, and debate at the moment. But it, but the the quote that jumped out to me was when he was talking about the handball law and and VAR and everything else. And he said, if the rules were simplified and closer to the perceptions of humans, everyone would be grateful. And I thought that pretty much summed it up. Really, that's um, that's where we are. But yeah, I mean, we when we went to Arsenal in the FA Cup. It gave us a taste of VAR and I don't think any of us were particularly impressed at, at what it did. You know, missing a, a kick at Berardi, I think, and then taking forever to review what looked like a, a definite non-red card for a, a brush of Barry Douglas's face. It, it was all it was all a bit slow and cumbersome and, and some of it felt a bit pointless. And and you have to say that the early weeks of this season don't fill you with encouragement either. But they've tweaked the rules, haven't they now? So they're going to be a bit more lenient, which doesn't help us with the uh, Robin Cock handball at Liverpool. But... But there we are. So uh, back to the, the second part of the question, which was what sort of a game can we expect on Saturday against Manchester City? Bielsa managed to tighten things up at Bramall Lane. I'm not saying that Sheffield United didn't have chances and they did have 
very good chances, but it didn't feel quite as fast and free and loose as periods at Liverpool and, and the Fulham games did. City, on the other hand, had one of those baffling games against Leicester the following day, which, in all seriousness, you, you, you can't really believe the scoreline when you look at the stats. You know, it's like 72% possession, which is obviously what City do. But losing 5-2 to a hat-trick from Vardy and goals all over the place and, and terrible defending, getting caught with a high line constantly. I, I mean, there's a bit of pressure on Guardiola at the moment. And I've, I've kind of felt in this week, we're, we're doing a, a long read for Saturday on the, you know, the Bielsa-Pep relationship and how it's evolved over the years. I think at this end, it's easy for us to, to take an interest in that this week because I don't imagine at the City end that the whole Bielsa-Guardiola narrative is, is of much interest to them because that was a bad defeat last weekend. And, and you know, it, it, it kind of sh- flagged up some of the problems that have been there for Guardiola for, for 12 to 18 months. So I wouldn't be rash in saying that this is a game Leeds can, can definitely win, but I do think there might be something in it for them. And I think a lot will depend on on how brittle Manchester City are. I think Leeds don't necessarily have the pace of of somebody like Vardy. You know, they don't necessarily have the quite the same quality that that Leicester do. But they do have players who can do damage. Um, and I think if City are, are leaving themselves open in the way that they did against Liverpool, uh, against um, Leicester last weekend, then I think Leeds will do damage. It does feel like their defence is a little bit in transition at the minute because they're in the throes of signing. Can't remember his name now. Sixty five million quid either way, and. Um... They obviously got Aki from Bournemouth for another forty million earlier in the summer. So it's a defence that's still bedding in, much like we've seen from Robin Cock. He's taken a few games to to get up to speed with the plan. Yeah, which is always going to be the case, and I think the same with Rodrigo as well. It did feel at Bramall Lane, as, as we mentioned earlier in this podcast, that it's just clicked a bit with him. You know what what he needs to do and and how fast the the game over here moves. It seemed like he was much more on on the same wavelength. I mean, I don't doubt that that City will be top two, top three this season, but I think already it feels again like Liverpool a better place than they are. It feels like Liverpool have, have probably recruitment wise hit the spot a little bit more cleanly than um, than City and, and Guardiola. And we talked before the Anfield game about whether it was a good time to go to Liverpool. They'd been a bit flat in the running, and and obviously then going into that game a little bit cold. It. it you know, there's, there's always the risk of, of the backlash, but it doesn't seem to me like a bad time to be playing City, particularly given what went on against Leicester. That's not to say Leeds are going to get anything from this game. And, it, and you know, in the same way as Liverpool, City have the ability to win 4-0, 5-0, 6-0 at the drop of drop of a hat when, when the mood takes them. Um, but there will just be a little bit of anxiety over there. And, and you know, it's, it's the same issue for Guardiola. If he isn't winning trophies, then he's under the cosh. Um, and if he isn't competing for the biggest ones, then... Then people do start to to question him, but it'll be it'll be fascinating to watch him and Bielsa going at it. This is the first time you know in, in eight years that, that they've shared the touchline, and it you know tactically there'll, there'll be a lot to enjoy in this. And give us a one to watch then, where you gaze into your legendary crystal ball and make uh, often bad predictions. What are we looking out for then, Ellen Road this weekend against Man City? I want to see Phillips against City's attacking threat I want to see what he does with De Bruyne I want to see how he manages this front line and 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 what he does to keep to try and keep City at arm's length from Mesley and and to try and keep City on the back foot or at least not 100% on the front foot if he can it's been it, it's been a difficult start for Phillips actually I'm not saying he hasn't played well but you know it is asking a lot of him these games it was tough against Fulham and um, it was always going to be hard over at Liverpool because of their front three and I think this is the thing about City. They are every bit as dangerous as Liverpool. You know, they, they can play as well, if not better, um, when they're, they're in the mood. Um, so that, you know, that is going to be an absolutely key area of the pitch. And and beyond that, have a look at Bielsa and Guardiola on the touchline. They're a funny pair of those two because you you tend to find with managers that even when they, they respect each other, it can all be a bit guarded and it can all be... They, they can be a little bit cautious in the way they are, but it's really reverential with, with those two, you know. Bielsa hates to be told that he's in some way a mentor or a you know this this kind of spiritual guide of, of Guardiola and, and equally whenever Guardiola gets into the, the topic of, of Bielsa and whenever Bielsa's name comes up he never wants to flag up his own success and he never wants to make a big deal of his own career you know he always wants to defer to Bielsa as the the best coach in the world his his idea of of the best coach going so yeah the dynamic between those two is going to be very interesting as well home win then easy three points I would say so yeah. I think, was the last time we played Man City that 4-0 defeat with Warnock in charge? Yeah, let's pretend we scored a goal. It'll be better than that. 
that's my prediction. Fantastic. Get involved with The Athletic right now. Then for just a pound a month, you can access everything Phil's written on Leeds United, including that article about Melier and how he's now our number one, or Bielsa's number one anyway. Uh, he's also written about the Amazon doc this week as well. So check out both of those. Limited time only on this offer, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to sign up. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod for just a quid a month. We'll catch you next time. See you in a bit. The Phil Hay Show. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.